that generate our motivation. And it's especially important to remember that when we do a spiritual practice, we want to have a big motivation, one that reaches out and connects with all living beings. And so feeling our interconnectedness, our interrelationships with all living beings, how our life depends on them, how they've been kind to us, then let's generate the motivation to make our spiritual practice one that repays the kindness of others. Because by improving ourselves, we become more capable of being a benefit. And especially by progressing on the path to Buddhahood, no matter how long it takes, the benefit we can be to others increases dramatically. And so really remembering this altruistic intention as we embark on listening to the teachings. So our theme this week is the Four Noble Truths. So this is one of um, the the basic teachings in Buddhism and uh, applied all the Buddhist traditions of you know whatever region or variety uh, adhere to these Four Noble Truths. Uh, these are also the first teachings that the Buddha gave in which he really outlined the whole context for, for his sasana or his doctrine. So the, the Four Noble Truths talk very much about, uh, the first two talk about our present experience and the last two talk about an alternative experience. Okay. The reason they're called noble is not because the truths themselves are noble. For example, the first truth is the truth of dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering. And there's nothing noble about suffering. Okay? But it's, they're called noble because the noble ones, in other words, the beings who have perceived emptiness directly, have perceived these as true. So that's why they're called the four noble truths. They're true as perceived by the people who have the meditative equipoise that, you know, knows reality. So, reliable. Okay, so um, I'll just outline them and then go back through them. So the, the first one is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha means unsatisfactory. It's kind of, it's often translated as suffering, but that's not a very good translation. So sometimes I say suffering, but... Sometimes an unsatisfactoriness is just too unwieldy, wieldly, you know. The truth of unsatisfactoriness, you know. <laughs> this is not a good English word, so sometimes I just say dukkha. Okay, it's the Pali Sanskrit word. Right? And then the second one is the origin of this dukkha, of this unsatisfactory, 
consciousness. Um, the third is the cessation of that, the liberation from it. And the fourth is the path leading to that cessation. Okay? So, the first two, the, the uh, noble truth of dukkha and its origin, that's our present experience. The cessation and the path to it is the alternative experience. Okay. We always start out contemplating our present experience because it's really important that we see very accurately what it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have a lot of resistance towards doing this. You know, It's just a very raw experience and we don't want to look at it. We just don't want to look at You know, what's our raw experience? Well, we get born old, sick, and die. Who wants to talk about that? You know? You see what I mean? You know, how we just avoid it. You know, if, if it was, you know, light and love and bliss, and, you know, we'd all sign up. But, you know, birth, aging, sickness, and death, it's like, blah. You know? But it's really important that we understand what the situation is. Otherwise, we're not going to have any motivation to get out of it. Yeah? Because we, we have so much resistance to looking at our situation that we just completely, you know, we're living in la-la land most of the time. Yeah? We just, you know, and that's why we keep ourselves so busy, don't we? You know, we go to the movies and we're surfing the internet and have all of our social engagements and go here and go there and do this and that. Basically, because, you know, who likes to be alone and look at their own mind and look at their own situation? So we keep ourselves very well intoxicated in this country, you know, with one distraction after another. And when the moment comes when... You know, we just have to be alone and kind of look at what our situation is. It's like, ah, you know, turn on the TV, turn on the radio, call somebody up, turn on movies, do something. And I think we have that reaction because we've never been taught any tools, you know. We don't know any tools for how to look at our situation in a beneficial way, how to deal with with it you know how to remedy it and so because we don't really have any tools and we prefer not to look at it you know or should I say the tools we have are very imperfect you know the, the tools we have for dealing with you know the aging sickness and death part are medical science and you know medical science tries hard but we all die don't we yeah and, and um, what's the cry- cryonics where they freeze part of your body in the hope to, you know, restore you later on. You know, it's a nice effort, but I wouldn't count on it. And then all the things that we do to prevent sickness, you know, the, me- the medical profession declares them good this year and then next year the things that are the cure become the causes of sicknesses. True, isn't it? You know, I mean, they try hard, but like each year, kind of, 
you know, oh, well, we approved this drug, but now we see it actually, you know, causes this and that and the other thing to occur as side effects that are worse than the initial disease. So, you know, it's a good effort on our part, but the whole situation of being born, getting sick, getting old, and dying is is one that is just the nature of having this body. So as soon as we're conceived, they all happen. Yeah. You know, as soon as we're conceived in our mother's womb, then, you know, birth happens. Yeah. From the moment we're conceived, we're already aging. Yeah. So aging is going on all the time. You don't grow younger, you grow older. Yeah. So aging starts the moment after conception. Sickness comes in. We've all been sick. And then death is the grand finale. And, um, you know, if we had our druthers about it, this is not what we wouldn't sign up for. Would it? You know? If somebody said, sign up here to get born, old, sick, and die, would you do it? Yeah? I don't think so. I don't think we'd sign up for that. Okay? But we were just born into the situation. Okay? So how did we get born in this situation? Now, what causes it? Somebody told me, it was very cute, you know, that birth is, no, life is a sexually transmitted terminal disease. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it's, yeah, that's kind of it, isn't it? Um, that, you know, so it, what causes it? Well, it wasn't just our mother and father, you know, messing around. It was, you know, and it wasn't the stork. <laughs> yeah, and Buddhism says it wasn't a creator being either, because if it was, if there was some independent creator that, you know, signed us up for birth, aging, sickness, and death, and we should definitely impeach him. <laughs> yeah? Don't you think if there was somebody controlling your life that set you up for this? Wouldn't you want to be free? You want to oust whoever it was. Okay? Well, the way Buddha saw the situation was it was not anything external, you know, that got us in the situation that we're in. Rather, it is a, our own afflicted mental state. Okay, so when he taught the second noble truth, the truth of the origin of the cause, what he pinpointed was ignorance. Okay, ignorance is an affliction, an afflicted mental state that apprehends things in the exact opposite way from the way they actually exist. The thing is, that we are so ignorant that we do not understand that we're ignorant. You know? And it's really, as you begin to do some investigation, it really becomes rather shocking how little we understand of our situation and how much uh, we just follow ignorance. Hmm? So, for example, yeah. Things exist dependently. This we can kind of understand. Okay? The cup depends on the... What are ceramic cups made out of? Clay? Clay and glaze and 
an oven and you know somebody who who made it yeah the bell is made out of metal and and different I guess alloys whatever they are I forgot all my science you know um, some synthetic material here at the top you know something the different materials that made up the bell the cloth is this is some kind of synthetic cloth so you know different things we invented so everything is dependent upon its parts it's dependent upon the material which composes it right I mean we can see that yeah when we look at our body yeah my body is dependent on the sperm and the egg and all the food I ate okay so we, we can from one, one part we can understand that yeah you know body's permanent body uh, is caused yeah it depends on on its uh, you know causes and conditions it depends on its parts it's a dependent phenomenon okay we can understand that intellectually but when we relate to our body on a day-to-day basis do we relate to our body as if it were a dependent phenomenon No? Or do we just kind of assume that our body's the same day today, same, same body today as it was yesterday? Yeah? When you look at the people that you know, do you think, oh, their body's changed from yesterday? No. When you look at them, do you think, oh, their body's dependent? Their body has parts? Do you start thinking of their parts? kidneys and intestines and lungs and no we just look at the skin on the outside so you see although on one part intellectually oh yeah the body's dependent but the way we just kind of relate to our body or others bodies on a day-to-day basis we just assume it's kind of the way it was before like some kind of independent body out there yeah. we don't think of it having causes I mean when you look at somebody you know do you imagine when they were zygote in the womb you know I, I don't think you do that too often do you yeah. oh you must have been such an absorbable zygote I don't think so yeah um, but the body today depends on you know that body in the womb you know, the embryo fertilized egg. Okay? But somehow we don't relate our present body to, you know, the previous moments of body. We just look at the body and there it is. Okay. And so everything we look at in our life we just assume, oh yeah, it's there. It has its own essence. It has its own nature, something in it that makes it what it is, independent of everything else. Yeah. We call that existing from its own side. Yeah. It exists from the side of this. This is a cup, you know, from its own side. It has nothing to do with my mind coming along and perceiving it or my mind labeling it. You know, we look at it as a cup from its own side. We look at people and we think, oh, there's a real person inside that body with some kind of real personality some kind of real essence maybe even a soul in there somewhere don't we yeah 
you look at people, do you think that they're dependent? No, they look like a real person out there that has their own entity, their own nature, and we're just kind of happening along and seeing them. But when we analyze a little bit, we realize, no, that's not it. There's no, you know, permanent, immutable personality in there. Unless you think you have the same personality that you did when your mom was pregnant with you. I don't think so. You know? It's nice that our personality changes, isn't it? Isn't it nice that we changed from when we were a baby? We learned how to say something else besides wah. You know, we changed. We're not some fixed personality, fixed thing. But this ignorance grasps at everything as if it has its own nature, you know, independent of everything else. And so once we start doing that, then that opens the door for us projecting a lot of other fallacies onto things. Okay? So we not only see things as having their own nature inside of themselves, but then we see them as inherently attractive or inherently unattractive. Mm-hmm. So when you look at somebody, the mind automatically, like this, goes attractive, unattractive, neutral, doesn't it? And we think it comes from the side of the other person. Or we look at food and we go good, bad, eh, you know, as if it came from the side of the food. Or we we look at, uh, you know, anything that we're attracted to and it seems like the happiness is in that object. Yeah. Somebody puts a hundred dollar bill here on that desk and we go, wow, you know, so much attachment to it, you know, as if it had worth in and of itself. It's only paper and ink. But we look at the money, oh, it has special worth. And the more pieces of paper like that I have, the more powerful I'm going to be. You know, the more influential I'm going to be, the more successful I'm going to be, the more other people are going to look at me and admire me and look up to me. We impute all that stuff on those pieces of paper, don't we? Do those pieces of paper have any of that? No, it's just completely our mind. Yeah, that's, that's creating, you know, social roles for all of this. But we don't realize it. And instead, we think that things have that nature in themselves. They have happiness in themselves. They have value and worth in themselves, independent of us. But when we look, that's, that's not it. Okay? So, under the influence of this ignorance, yeah, we then impute this inherent beauty in something, so then we get attached to things. And then when we're attached, we get greedy, we get demanding, yeah, we have all sorts of expectations, we get disappointed, we get disillusioned. Attachment doesn't lead to happiness. But sometimes we get a little buzz from it, and so then when somebody steps in and interferes with with us getting what we think is going to make us happy, then we think that that person or that situation 
has unhappiness in them and they are inherently negative and then we want to destroy them so then we create enemies and we create things we don't like and then so much aversion and animosity and hostility comes in our life and we start pushing things away so then we're involved in this incredible trip in our life trying to get some things and push other things away and so the whole life is just concerned with that you know grab this push that grab this push that and we can see you know in the morning when we wake up this is basically you know what's happening watch your mind when we have our potluck lunch watch what your mind does yeah you start scanning over yeah and then you look oh that one I like I want to get that one I hope the people before me in line don't get it first (laughs) yeah and as you scan it and you see something else and you go or you go oh that would have been so good if they only hadn't put the whatever ingredient it is that you don't like it you know uh, why did they have to ruin that chili by putting beans in it you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so, so automatically we're just looking at the food we haven't tasted anything but already the mind is grasping and pushing grasping and pushing Okay, so all day long like this not really much peace in the mind and it comes to seem to us like the whole purpose of our life is just to grasp and push yeah but you know what kind of meaning and purpose of life is that yeah we're at the end of the day when we finally leave this life what do we have to show for it only the remnants of our most recent grasping and pushing but you know you have how many years past of grasping and pushing that you don't even have at the time you're dying but when you were grasping and pushing at those things it seemed really important yeah remember when you were little and you had favorite toys or maybe you had a blankie yeah did everybody have a blankie Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, you didn't have a blankie. Oh, we better get you a blankie. <laughs> yeah, most of us had blankies, didn't we? You know, or our favorite stuffed animal or something like that. Yeah, and you know, all we have to do is ask our parents how much we bellowed when you know our parents forgot our blankie or our stuffed animal. Hmm because yeah, we were so attached to it it's like oh I can't live without my blankie you know without my stuffed doggy or you know whatever my stuffed elephant whatever it was so that was of incredible importance to us um, at that moment in life um, do you think about your blankie now? <laughs> I hope <laughs> yeah you know so later in life what we were attached to earlier in life it's like forget you know throw that thing out but now we have our own version of a blankie don't we yeah so we have it might be our house it might be our sports equipment it might be our computer equipment it might be you know we have lots of different things 
that, that we kind of hang on to and this is my thing and I feel secure when I have this yeah. so, so our, our blankie in quotes it changes year by year yeah. but when, when we're attached to it we're very attached but you know if it had inherent attractiveness inside of itself we would still be here with our blankies you know yeah. and the thing is everybody else would find our blankie as beautiful as we find it yeah. if it had inherent beauty in it everybody would see it like that so same way with anything that we cling to that we're attached to if it were actually had those qualities in it in itself independent of, of our perceiving mind then everybody would see everything the same way wouldn't they yeah. if, if this you know clock were, were you know beautiful from its own side then everybody would see it the same way he never put gorgeous things on the teacher's table. <laughs> a piece of paper, you know, paper recorder, you know. I'd put some, some, something juicy, you know, that everybody, not everybody, some people get attached to. Yeah. Because, yeah. Okay. Cheesecake. <laughs> okay. Delicious cheesecake that doesn't make you fat. Okay, let's just imagine. We can visualize it. You know? If the cheesecake had beauty in and of itself, everybody would look at it the same way. Okay? Does everybody like cheesecake? No. Yeah. Should we just look at those people and say, oh, they're just not thinking correctly? <laughs> yeah. Of course, they like something else that we find disgusting. Yeah. So then they think we're not thinking correctly. But you see, you know, how just attraction and aversion, it's all stuff that, that is, you know, based on our imputing things, projecting them into it. Same thing with aversion. Now, think of somebody that you really don't like. And then remember that somebody else loves that person. Yeah? So, you know, somebody that to us just appears despicable, somebody else thinks is wonderful. Yeah? So, that, I mean, just our own experience shows that these good and bad qualities don't exist inherently inside the object. So all this projection that we do, this misapprehension that we have, causes us so much turmoil in our lives. And then based on, of course, the grasping, you know, with attachment and greed, and the pushing with aversion and hostility, then we do all sorts of actions. You know, we steal, we cheat, we talk badly behind somebody else's back we take more than our fair share of stuff we do all sorts of stuff so that leaves all those actions from what we call karma they leave imprints on our mind and then those you know ripen into what we experience so that's how kind of life goes on like that and from the Buddhist viewpoint it's not just this life you know it's many lives we talked about rebirth and karma you know, in the previous session. 
And so we just keep on doing this same rerun many, many lifetimes, fueled by the ignorance, the mental afflictions, and the karma. So that's our present situation. And the Buddha said we have to really look at it very squarely and face it so that we will have the inspiration and the energy to get ourselves out of it. Because if we don't recognize it as something unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory, and we don't realize that the causes are there in our own minds, you know, if we don't realize these two things, then we're going to continue to be um, uh, deceived by the external world and by our own mind's reaction in relationship to it. And we'll just create more and more and more misery for ourselves and others. Okay. So, the, this is the first two noble truths. It's interesting, in our monastic robes, there's uh, a pleat that we put behind. It's usually two pleats. Some, some of us just put one pleat. And then there's two pleats that we turn um, ahead on this side. The two pleats that we put behind are you know, the truth of unsatisfactoriness and its origins. It's what they represent. And on the front side, the truth of cessation and the path, what we want to attain, what we want to go forward to. So just our robes are reminding us of the Four Noble Truths. So, you know, what do we want to go towards? True cessations and true paths. Okay. True cessations are the absence, yeah, the absence of various levels of dukkha and more specifically the absence of the causes of that dukkha, the ignorance the afflictions, the karma, okay? And when you get really technical, the true cessations actually refer to the empty nature of the mind of a noble being who has realized these various, um, who has cleansed their mind of these various levels of afflictions. And it's said that these true cessations are very peaceful, yeah. The the ultimate true cessation is nirvana. Okay, there's also different levels of nirvana, but another synonym for nirvana is peace. Okay, it's called peace because we're no longer rocked, you know, or catapulted back and forth by the afflictions, the karma, the ignorance. Okay, there's some actual peace in our minds, peace in our lives, you know, where we're free from those afflictions and the influence that the karma exerts on us in terms of causing rebirth. So if you look at it on a more practical level, okay, if you want to get some idea of, of what nirvana could possibly be like, think of never getting angry again. Okay, what would that be like? Never to get angry again. Somebody could call you any name in the book. They could do anything horrible to you. And you would, your mind would be such that there would be no anger arising. Would that be a nice state of mind to have? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah? No anger. Okay. Well, that's a quality of nirvana. 
or think about how we get so attached to things you know the greedy mind the clinging mind the I want I gotta have I want I want I want that mind okay and how unsettling that mind is because it never has enough so it breeds all kinds of discontent and it breeds all kind of fear because whatever we have we're afraid of losing it whatever we don't have that we want we're afraid of not getting it well imagine what would it feel like not to have that clinging attachment and its accompanying dissatisfaction and um, and fear wouldn't that be nice yeah wouldn't that be nice whatever you had your mind's peaceful Okay, whatever you have totally okay about it including this body whether I have this body or not doesn't matter wouldn't that be nice yeah compared to how we are now <laughs> my body it's got to be comfortable all the time and I've learned so much about it and I've got to make it look good and you know, the whole trip we do about our body wouldn't it be nice just to have equanimity towards this body yeah time of death comes no problem yeah our whole, in fact our whole ego identity that we that we created for ourselves I am this person with this social ranking and this you know we have so many identities don't we yeah and to not be attached to any of those identities people could call you any name in the book you could be high class or low class you could be rich or poor doesn't matter to you wouldn't that be nice not to have that attachment that clings onto those identities so that when your identity is threatened you you don't get all bent out of shape we get pretty bent out of shape when our identity is threatened doesn't it you know especially you know we think I'm in charge of this and somebody comes and offers an opinion who asked you for your opinion yeah or we get defensive oh what I'm doing is okay you know we get so attached to these kinds of things and so just imagine you know that they exist conventionally but there's absolutely no attachment to them it'd be kind of nice wouldn't it yeah and then when there were other beings that you saw were miserable you could actually extend yourself to being a benefit to them because there would be no worry or fear for what's going to happen to me if I help them you know what's going to happen to me if I give them this there won't be so many expectations when we help others or, okay I gave you something you better like me now you know there won't be any of that so if we, if we think a little bit about nirvana in that way of what it's a freedom from we can get some kind of feeling for it you know? it's, it's actually nothing that we can really conceptually grasp at this point but at least we can get some feeling you know for the kind of peace and freedom that, that would be there so that's the third noble truth and then the fourth is the true path you know how do we get there yeah so the path actually refers to our consciousness 
what are mental states that we want to cultivate and actualize in order to attain that state of peace. So if now we're professionals in anger and resentment and hurt feelings, you know, what we want to do is become professionals in benevolence and ethical conduct and, you know, mindfulness and things like that. Okay, so there's a definite path to follow, you know, and a prescribed method and a, a, a method of training, actually. You know, you practice this and this and this and this and this. I mean, it's a roadmap that's all laid out for how to develop our mind so that we can eliminate the ignorance that is the source of all of this. The path is commonly uh, talked about as the three higher trainings. In other words, the higher training in ethical conduct and concentration and in wisdom. And then there's another way of speaking about it in which we talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, noble because this is the practice of the noble beings, the Aryas, who have perceived emptiness directly. Okay, so the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, to have a correct view, correct intention, and then uh, correct livelihood, correct um, actions, correct speech, and then correct effort, correct mindfulness, and then correct concentration. Okay, so those eight are things that, that, that we want to cultivate as a way of practice. Yeah. If we look deeply in, into those, we also find that there's a lot of love and compassion implicit in them. Yeah. Because when we think of practicing the path to liberate ourselves, you know, we want to practice the, the Noble Eightfold Path. When we look around at the situation of other living beings, then we have love and compassion for them. We want to practice that path for their benefit. Because okay. we want to liberate not just ourselves from this situation, but all beings from this situation. Okay. So just so briefly at the Noble Eightfold Path, the first one, correct view, is to, to have a, uh, a correct view of, you know, well, of the Four Noble Truths, basically. You know, what is unsatisfactoriness? What causes it? How do we get out? And what destination are we going to? Yeah. And so letting go any kind of wrong no- notions of our misery being called, caused by external beings or some, you know, either other people or some kind of, you know, external creator or chance or anything like that, but really discerning the, the, correct, the correct view. And then the second of the Eightfold Noble Path, right intention. This is an intention of non-harmfulness. So going through our life without harming others. An intention of, ben- of renunciation. In other words, giving up clinging, giving up attachment to things. And an intention of benevolence. So having love and compassion and altruistic intention. Wishing others well. Okay. And then a correct livelihood, so how we earn our living, how we get the requisites for life, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. We get those in an honest way, 
not through cheating, not through uh, some kind of business that harms others. Okay. Uh, correct actions, so abandoning, harming others physically, uh, stealing their things, uh, unwise or unkind sexual expression. Okay, then abandoning, uh, I've been now practicing correct speech. So here, abandoning lying and using our speech to create disharmony, harsh words and idle talk, and instead, you know, cultivating uh, truthfulness and kindness in our speech, speaking when it's appropriate. Yeah. Um, Using our speech to reconcile others. And then we want to practice right effort. So instead of putting effort into making a lot of money and helping our friends and harming our enemies and uh, you know all the effort into glorifying our own ego we want to put our effort into practicing the path I thought one of the inmates wrote me something about that I forgot I had to go look it up he made a very very good analogy about right effort Sorry, I can't remember right now. Um, Okay, so there's the right effort. Then mindfulness, yeah, being aware of our body, our feelings of happiness, unhappiness, and neutral feelings, our mind, different levels and states of mind, and all phenomena. So developing a, a wisdom that understands and is aware of how these things operate uh, and developing the ability to concentrate on the objects of our wisdom so that we can actually break through the ignorance and the afflictions and karma that bind us. Okay, so developing single point of concentration that we can, you know, that we join together with wisdom that can really penetrate the nature of reality and by meditating on that over time use that to cleanse the mind so we use the fourth noble truth to cleanse the mind of the second noble truth yeah by that we then attain the third noble truth which is the opposite of the first noble truth okay so that's just a brief outline of the Four Noble Truths. There's a lot, actually, to, to go into uh, in discussing them in depth. Uh, 